Good morning, church. My name's Colton, and I have the honor of reading our passage this morning. Uh, If you would join me in John chapter 17, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 26. can be found on uh, page 849 of your pew Bible. It'll be on the screens as well. John 1, or sorry, John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my full joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world hates them for it, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Church, this is Jesus' words. Well, as we've been saying, half of the book of John covers 
about three years, and the other half covers about one week. This is the part we're preaching now, and and mostly within that week, one evening, one morning, and one afternoon. So we're aware of what's been happening, I will say, that on this evening, in this night, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. They've shared the Passover meal together, which we take to be the Lord's Supper now as we receive it to us. He's spoken truth to them to sustain them for what's ahead. And he now prays what we call the high priestly prayer. Jesus' last words with his disciples before he's arrested and betrayed is a prayer for them. And as we'll see, it's a prayer for us. Now, just a heads up here at the end of the service, uh, we're going to take communion together, but also we're going to try and build in just a a few minutes of prayer in the pews together. We're talking about prayer, we're going to preach about prayer, unity, and so I just want to flag that now so you're aware. But with all that in mind, let's just pray briefly and we'll look at these words from Jesus. Would you pray again with me? Heavenly Father, as we look around, we could lament so many things. The places where we lack unity, where we perceive a lack of unity out there somewhere, and yet also when we know it's there in our hearts too. With all these laments, Lord, may we put alongside that the ways you're also answering these prayers. And in surprising ways, even now, we have more unity in the gospel than we even realize. Awaken us to that this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben Bechtel was one of the pastors here for eight years, and he's, since October, been the church planting pastor at Midtown Community Church. We, we sent him out with, with fanfare and joy, and I'm thankful for all of that. Many times I would go into his office over the eight years he was here, um, and I would look at one particular book on his shelf, uh, and he would look at that one particular book on his shelf, and we would laugh <laughs> to each other about this particular book. And, and our jokes were not so much making fun of the author or um, the book itself. We were really more just in awe of the undertaking of this book. It's a 672-page book with very small textbook-type font. We'd sit in his office, and I'd see the book on its shelf, and it's so fat, giant book. And that entire book is a series of sermons on John 17. (laughs) That's all it is, by one of what some would call the greatest preacher from the 1900s. And, and this week and last week, I started realizing if instead over these eight years of making fun of the book, <laughs> I had actually started reading it, then maybe we would be more helped, but I didn't. So <laughs> that's where we're at. Um, it's such an epic passage. I mean, isn't it? Didn't you get the sense of that as we read it? As I've been studying it for the last two weeks, I, I did all the usual steps I would do to prepare for a sermon and more. I I, I translated from the Greek. I took pages of notes. I read commentaries. I listened to sermons. I even, um, on one kind of (laughs) 
depressing afternoon but encouraging afternoon I, I, I got out like the colors through Microsoft Word and I, I, I highlighted themes and colors and, 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 and things that looked the same and things that looked different and I printed it out and just stared and stared and stared and it was very much like I don't know if you've ever been in a text thread where someone shares one of the gifts or on social media and you see the detective in front of this board and there's all these pictures and red strings and they're trying to figure out who did it and then all of a sudden math equations start swirling around the person equations you've never seen before and then his eyes are like and then right if you see some of you have probably seen that one anyway it might as well be real footage of pastors trying to get their minds around all that John 17 is for us to put it another way If you have 30 minutes in a museum, your best chance of seeing something meaningful is not to throw on the running shoes and just sprint through every exhibit hall and just see and say, I I saw the whole museum, right? You could do that, but your best chance of seeing something meaningful is probably just to take a seat and look at a few paintings and a few sculptures really closely. And so that's what we're going to do. A common outline for John 17 as you look into this passage is to see the beginning of the prayer, um, Jesus praying to his Father about his relationship with his Father, not exclusively but mainly. The middle part of the passage from 6 to 19, people often designate as Jesus praying to his Father about the disciples who were there with him, maybe exclusively those 11 but perhaps broader than that, those men and women he had touched through his ministry along the way. But then at the end, people often see Jesus praying, not for those followers, but maybe we could say us followers, future followers. Look with me at verse 20. This is where you see that. I'll read it now. Hopefully just leave it open. We're going to, especially the end. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, those phrases, these only and their word, they refer to the disciples and their word, meaning their collective witness. So we might intuit it kind of this way. I do not ask, Jesus is saying to his father, I do not ask for my disciples only, my disciples right now only, but also for future disciples who will believe in me through their word. The Holy Spirit would cause these disciples, those disciples perhaps I should say, to remember the words of Jesus, to write them down in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to be authorized spokesmen to the churches in the letters that we have written on behalf of Jesus, and then there would be those like us. In fact, actually us who would come after those disciples and believe those words. And it's such a neat thought, isn't it? When you think about it, Jesus here on the most epic night in the history of the world, he's taking time to pray for you. These few verses at the end of the prayer are where we're going to, you know, there's all the places in the museum we could look. But we're just going to sit right here and look at these and see what we can see. And what do we see when we look at these verses here at the end. 
First, we see he's praying for our unity. I'll read them again, verse 20, but then a few more verses after that. So just look with me at it. And, and as I read verses 20 through 23, listen for the language of unity and the repetition on these themes. It's described in different ways, but, but think, um, or be looking for unity, the language of being one. Beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, those disciples there with him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world would believe that you have sent me. 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become, and then he adds, perfectly one. The unity of the church matters to Jesus. We often speak of the church as the body of Christ. It's a common designation, a way of speaking about the church. And so based on these verses, maybe we could say that this way, that Jesus hates to see his body working against itself. You can think about that even from a medical standpoint, the way that can be so troubling in certain medical scenarios. Jesus hates to see his body working against itself, hates to see its body fighting against itself, hates to see his body destroying itself. As Protestant Christians, there are many ways we can be thankful for the Reformation. However, so much disunity is one of the unfortunate consequences of the time we call the Reformation. In the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church had many problems, some of which continue today, some of which don't. And when the Reformers began to name these problems and to seek to bring reform, hence the name Reformation and Reformers, it, it began this process that gave us Protestant churches but we don't simply have one split away from the Roman Catholic Church, do we? We have a split that led to splintering and splintering and splintering. And I think that's an unfortunate consequence. I feel this personally, even within our denomination. A few years ago, I went through the process of ordination in our denomination. It's Actually, a process with several steps. It's not one step. It takes several years. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it ends with going before this ordination council where you give a defense of, um, well, pretty much anything they want to ask about, to be honest. Uh, it's four or five hours of being grilled by, you know, 10 to 15 other credentialed pastors about the Bible, theology, and your lifestyle. Sometimes the way we say it is that we're being examined on our creed, our competence, and our character. Anyway, an, another member of the ordination council was so frustrated with me and our denomination, he refused to come to my ordination, largely over theological disagreement and other things. Now, that story has a surprising ending, which I want to share at the end, but I just share that to say my one little experience wasn't so little. Like, it, it hurt. It, it caused problems. I'd even say that, that much of my job here at the church is working with people struggling toward unity with one another. And sometimes I'm part of that problem. You probably feel how difficult unity is 
without me pointing out. Certainly, you can feel the disunity as we look across the broader landscape of American Christianity, maybe even specifically to say American evangelical Christianity, or maybe a more narrow side of or swath of Christianity. A few years ago, or excuse me, a few weeks ago when I was preaching, I, I mentioned this article by a guy named Aaron Wren. I don't know if any of you looked it up or went and found his article, but, but if you weren't here, you're not going to be lost. But let me just, what that article was about and what I was saying about it was he, he had this framework for talking about Christianity in America over the years. He talked about there was a time where it was a more positive world, and then he talked about a neutral world, and then a more, what he called, a negative world. And I tend to think there's something helpful about that designation and what it might teach us. And then there's, I don't want to get into this, but there's other people who have grabbed that scheme and kind of done less helpful things. But, but, but none of that is what I really want to talk about. But what I want to talk about is his this splintering of Christianity, his opening paragraph to that essay. I thought about reading it the other week and it didn't fit as well, but I think it actually almost fits better here. So let me read that to you. It's a little long, but, but I just want you to hear kind of the assessment of evangelical Christianity that he had as he began that essay two years ago when it was published. Wren writes, American evangelicalism is deeply divided. Some evangelicals have embraced the secular turn toward social justice activism, particularly around race and immigration, accusing others of failing to reckon with the church's racist past. Others charge evangelicals' elites of going woke and having failed their flocks. Some elites are denounced for abandoning historic Christian teachings on sexuality. Others face claims of hypocrisy for supporting Donald Trump and his marriages. Old alliances are dissolving. Former Southern Baptist Agency head, that's quite the title, former Baptist Southern Baptist Agency head Russell Moore has left his denomination. Political pundit David French has become a fearsome critic of many religious conservatives who would have once been his allies. Baptist professor Owen Strand left an established seminary, this is in Kansas City, to take a leadership position in a startup one, and that's a generous description of what happened there. Some people are deconstructing their faith and leaving evangelicalism or Christianity behind. This is the key sentence. Where once there was a culture war between Christianity and secular society, today there is a culture war within evangelicalism itself. Now, you might not recognize those names. The people mentioned. I would actually say that if you don't recognize them, if there's a good chance your Christianity is healthier <laughs> to some degree. If you're like, I'm a little clue, I'm not sure what's going on. Yeah, that, that might be better. But regardless, you probably can feel that disunity that Wren describes. You can feel it when you talk with Christians at the work, you know, wherever you work or wherever you go to school and you bring up articles or events and you realize or you see their social media posts and you realize, okay, they're looking at this in a very different way than I'm looking at it. And actually, to be honest, you, they might not just be in different churches. Right? They might be here in our church. If you've been at our church for any length of time, been in any of our Bible studies, or if, as a few of you were, you were on our pastor elder team during the first year of COVID, <laughs> 
then you probably know how difficult working towards unity can be. Which is all a long way to say that unity isn't easy. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want it for us. That, that's what he's praying for on this night that's so important where every word matters. Note again his words in verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. As I said, we often speak of the church as the body of Christ, and thus we could say that if we were drawing from his words and saying the opposite, so to speak, that, that Jesus hates to see his body working against itself. He, he hates to see his body fighting against itself, destroying itself. And as we go to the last point here, I want to focus on what we're going to see is this unity that Jesus so wants. It's actually for more than just us. Like, certainly, we enjoy church better when we're all in unity. That's, that's certainly true. It makes church better. It makes life better. It makes my job and David's job and Tony's job and other jobs easier. But the next thing we notice is that this unity that Jesus so prays for is for more than just us. Our unity is for our witness. Let me read those verses again. But, but I want you to know, like, listen this time. So I'm going to read uh, 21, 22. Uh, two, or I'm 20, just 21 and 23 here. Listen for the so that phrase. Right, the so that phrase, like if I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this, so that, like it implies that like I'm doing all this other stuff so that this one thing would happen. What is the so that in these verses? Verse 21. That they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Coming down to verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. What does it say? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Do you see that? So that they might believe, so that they might know as we sit in this corner of the museum and, and linger over these words, we see the purpose of our unity more clearly. God has unity within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he invites us in the gospel through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the promise of his second coming. He invites us in the gospel into that same unity so that the world, when they look at the church, they say, something's different there. Their unity must come from another place, from, from other resources than we have. In other words, God has done everything needed so that we would have unity, so that others would have unity with God. To say it one more way, God has bound up his reputation with the unity of the church. So the stakes are really, really high. Our unity is not just for us. You can't say you're interested in the glory of God in this world and be disinterested in our unity. 
And I use the words us and our unity intentionally. In Aaron Wren's article, he, he, he's writing about broad trends in Christianity. Like he, he's making generalizations. He, on purpose, right? Like that's what he's doing. He's looking at you know, broadly what's happening in Christianity you know, in the past, in the pre, you know, more di- recent past, and then in the present. So he's making these generalizations. So it makes sense for him to use names that have connections to broad streams of Christianity and cultural engagement and how different groups of people are going about cultural engagement differently. You know, this person tends to engage in culture this way as a Christian. This person tends to attain, uh, um, engage in culture this way. So that's, that's, that's appropriate. But these groups and these people are, are huge national groups and entities and people with recognition and giant ministries, so to speak. And I don't think God is making us responsible to fix everything that's fractured out there somewhere. I don't think it's our fault that Christians out there don't all get along. I don't say that because the gospel's not big enough to fix everything out there. The gospel is big enough to heal every divide. But when I talk about unity... I'm more talking about the unity here among us. I'm talking about the unity that we have a responsibility to pursue. I'm talking about the unity with the people who you have their phone number in your phone and they are in yours. To be more concrete, the people of this neighborhood, the actual people of this neighborhood, I'm sorry, there's a part missing on this microphone and it's not staying on my ear and I'm doing the best I can. The people here in our neighborhood, like the actual neighborhood we all park around and in, and maybe if you get here early, you get a spot in the parking lot, but like it, this actual neighborhood, the people who look out their windows as we park in front of their houses and who watch us get out of our cars and walk into this building, God wants the neighbors in this neighborhood to see the diversity of age, the diversity of income, the diversity of color, the diversity of clothing, the diversity of parenting, and the diversity of singleness and married and so on and so forth. And he wants them to see that diversity and ponder how in the world could these people come together week after week and seem to be happy (laughs) There was a sweetness to when we had church during COVID on the front yard for that very reason. He, he, he wants them to wonder how people so different could love each other so well. One person, they notice, they pulls up to church in a sports car. Another person takes the bus and gets out at 22 and walks to church from Jonestown Road. How do they all get along? They wonder. And and then imagine if our neighbors venture in here on Sunday morning, and I'm saying they as though any of them are not here. Many times there are neighbors here among us, and perhaps you're visiting from this neighborhood or some neighborhood. You're all from some neighborhood somewhere visiting. Perhaps then they come to a Bible study and get to know us better. I hope that when they do, they'd come to see that even as we might understand some aspects of Christianity differently, I would hope that they 
Come to see us as those who have places of humility and warmth and peace and joy towards one another. That, that's what I mean with unity. I don't mean uniformity and doctrine exactly. Yes, at the biggest, brightest truths, but, but what I hope is that we would be pursuing a warmth and joy and peace and encouragement and humility towards one another, a curiosity even at why others would believe what they believe and understand things the way they understand it, that they would see that and that would be intriguing and confusing and wonderful. They would see that kind of warmth and think, I wonder if that's what it's like to be in relationship with God, to know Him, because that is what it's like to be in relationship with God, to have warmth and peace and joy. Now, we certainly have work to do I know that, but, but I also want to spend a few minutes saying that, that, that I can see a growing unity among us. While I've been one of your pastors, not to say, you know, take credit for anything here, but just to mark time, to say, while I've been one of your pastors, and others have been your pastors, and you've been here as members, I've seen friends who have lost friendship become friends again. Well, I've been one of your pastors. I've seen marriages blown apart by mistrust, and I've seen some of them come back together again. I've seen small group Bible studies work together to love people in that small group Bible study who are harder to love until they're less hard to love. And I've seen our church partner with another church, not even in our denomination, to plan a church in this city simply because it was the right thing to do. And I will tell you that in the process, Liberty Church, this church across the river, the church I'm speaking of, maybe some of you have visited there, maybe it's a wonderful church, wonderful pastors. I will tell you that what I saw, which I'm very much behind the scenes, like if there's a behind the scenes, I was there and I'm still there to be honest, doing things and having meetings and, and the Tuesday we all get together, the advisory team, we pray about Midtown Community Church, we hear about the issues there and we try and pastor, encourage Ben and Greg who are there. I will tell you that behind the scenes, Liberty Church wanted no credit <laughs> No fame, no glory, no recognition, even as they sent gobs of money and gobs of people. They just wanted to help. It was extraordinary, to be honest. As I said, we had work to do in areas of unity, but as your pastor, I need to tell you, God is among us. The prayers of Christ are coming true. As we close, I, I want to come back to a story, and this will take just a few minutes. But I want to come back to the story I alluded to earlier of my ordination and this pastor, his name is Andrew, who would not come to my ordination. Andrew pastors a church about an hour from here, incidentally or coincidentally, if you, however you want to say that. His church is also named Community. So we pastor churches of the same name. And Andrew has, um, he was mad at me, didn't come to the ordination, and this goes back a long ways. In fact, it was, goes back to even when I was licensed almost 10 years ago. That was a step one in the ordination process. Some of you, I'm looking at uh, a few of you that might be familiar with this process. And, and he was the one person on my licensing council who gave me a no vote. Not that I'm still dwelling on this. <laughs> anyway, um, that happened. Um, but then a few years ago, so I'm in Philly on a Thursday afternoon. Another ordination for another pastor. At this time, I'm already ordained. And um, 
sitting there on the council is three or four hours into the process, and, and we come to the particular point of the exam where Andrew and I have such a disagreement, and I don't want to bog down on the details of the story, but our denomination changed one word in our statement of faith to broaden some things so that they'd let in more evangelical Christians into our denomination, um, and again, I don't want to bog down on what that specific point is. Anyway, it, it is a way to say that as we got to this part of the ordination, this guy's name is Jason who was being ordained, and I know Jason pretty well, and, and, and I noticed in his paper, he had not put the updated statement of faith. He was using the old one, which he's allowed to do, but was very confusing to me. So I know this guy Jason well, and so I say, Jason, what, what are you doing, man? <laughs> I know there's an option to keep the old statement of faith and the old wording, but, but why don't you put the new one in? Because if you do that, then you can believe everything you want to believe, and I can believe everything I want to believe about the end times, and we can all have the unity here that we're supposed to have in the evangelical free church. Why did, are you excluding me? Now, I wanted to say that without passion. I'm supposed to be a ordination council mode. I wanted to say that neutral. Believe it or not, I struggled to do so. <laughs> and everyone in the room could hear how hurt I was, including me. I was like, oh, wow, I'm, I sound really hurt <laughs> here as I'm saying this to my friend Jason. And because it had been years in the making, and Jason here, he speaks up, he goes, it's actually just a mistake. I just cut and pasted, and I, I used the old one. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> After a long pause, Andrew leans in. It's a giant table. You know, we're built this giant square table in the, um, their sanctuary, and there's people watching, a couple dozen. And Andrew leans forward, and he says, you know, let's, let's just stop for a minute. And he apologized for the way he had treated me, and he wanted my forgiveness. Like, I, I could hardly believe it. That doesn't happen. I've, I've sat in 25 of these. And I, of course, apologize for my part in the rift. And I don't know exactly how you rank your top five ministry moments, but I will tell you that for me, that moment and the moments that followed after that are some of my favorite moments for being a pastor here. And when Andrew and I see each other at events, as we did recently, we're going to probably see each other mid-March at another event, we almost always end up sitting together and catching up and laughing and being friends. And I share that story for a few reasons. It's fresh for me because our denomination reached out uh, and asked me, and then I asked Andrew if we could write that up, and so it's going to appear on their national website in the next couple weeks as a, as a longer story form, all the details, some of which I'm not sharing just for the length of time, so that will be available, so it feels fresh. I also share it because stories can be helpful to break up the cynicism that can grow in our heart, kind of like going to the dentist, they're going to scrape away the plaque, like it, that, that happens to our hearts. And it can be hard to remember that Christians don't always end up hating each other and never reconciling because sometimes they do. But here's the main reason I share that story. I, I, I tell you the story the way I told it because as Andrew tells his version of that story, which is the same, it just compliments, he, he would say he didn't know how to reconcile. Like he just felt stuck. He knew he was he was wrong in that part, and I had my part, but like, he knew he was wrong. He, he knew I belonged in the denomination. He wanted to be friends. He just, he had no idea how to do it. 
There were things going on in his church at the time, going on in his own life. He, he, he just felt stuck. He knew we needed to reconcile, but he didn't know how. And I'm, So I'm telling you this story because Andrew would say, and I would say, that neither of us were loving enough, smart enough, or godly enough to fix our disunity on our own. And that's the encouragement of this passage. I'll explain more. I've been preaching these verses to you as though they were commands. And I don't think that's wrong. To hear these prayers of Jesus and receive them to us as, well, then how then shall we live? I don't think that's wrong. But they're not just commands, are they? They are the prayers that Jesus prays for us, which is a long way to say that you can have hope for the broader church, the true church, Hope for our own local church. Because Jesus lived and prayed and died and rose and sits in heaven, continuing to intercede for us, promising to return so that his church could have the unity he so loves. Becoming friends with Andrew isn't so much, in my mind, a story about how great we are, but how great God is. We can have hope for our unity because God loves it more than we do. We get to celebrate this in communion. Would you pray with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to to come back up. We'll we'll have our communion service come up in just a minute, not not quite yet. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for earning for us, achieving for us in in this gospel story that Father, Son, Spirit working together to accomplish everything necessary for our joy in you forever. And that begins now. So we ask and pray that you, what is true for us in the gospel, theologically, would be true of us experientially. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.